Let us look together now at Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13. And we'll begin reading at verse 1 and read this passage, these first seven verses once again. Romans 13, let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore, ye must needs be subject, not only for wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For for this cause pay ye tribute also, for they are God's ministers attending continually upon this very thing. Render therefore to all their dues tribute to whom tribute is due, Custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. And may the Lord bless the reading of his word and give us grace as we look at it together here today. I think the best and certainly simplest outline of these verses before us is that given by John MacArthur in his commentary on the book of Romans, and it is simply that we have in the first part of verse 1 the duty stated or the the command given, let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. After that, we have depending on how you number them, but perhaps seven reasons for obeying the command. Reasons or motives to obedience. And you notice the second sentence in verse 1 begins with the word for. This is an explanation. This is a reason why. Because, we might say. And you notice... We have verse 3 begins with 4. Verse 4 begins with 4. Verse 5 begins with wherefore. And verse 6 begins with 4. We have just one reason after another. And the the case kind of builds here. So we saw last time in verse 1 the command in the first part of the verse. And then the first reason or motive given There is no power but of God, and the powers that be are ordained of God. 
In other words, the reason that we should be subject to civil authority is because it is of divine origin. It is not just a man-made thing. It is not a human construct. There is no power but of God. This is something of a, a general statement. It's a blanket statement that covers all systems of government. The Bible never says you know, monarchy is better than a republic or whatever else. It's just dealing with civil government in whatever form it presents itself. It covers then all types or all systems of government, all types of individuals who hold office in civil government. <clears throat> Commenting here, Robert Haldane says, If God has appointed every government that exists in the world, his people are bound to submit to every government under which their lot has been cast. There is but one exception, and that is when anything is required contrary to the law of God, end quote. And I'm trying in my best to hold off until after we have worked through these seven verses to come back then and deal with the exceptions uh, and what is mentioned in other passages of Scripture. This, again, is the general rule, the general principle. Submit to the civil government. And the first reason given is there's no power but of God. Civil authority is God's institution. It is his hand at work in the world. The powers that be are ordained of God. <clears throat> now, it is, of course, important for us to understand that the power of civil government is a delegated power. It is not an absolute power. It is a power that is under God, that God has delegated. It's not an independent power. It's not an absolute power. But it is a power. Civil government has a claim upon us because God has a claim upon us and God has ordained civil government. And while we're reviewing here verse 1, let me just say this. There's no mention here or anywhere else in Scripture about, uh, you know, Government is derived from the people. Rather, the power of government is derived from God. We have a lot in our uh, American history and DNA that we need to carefully examine by the word of God. Our Declaration of Independence says that uh, civil authority only comes by the consent of the governed. Well, that's a, a, a lofty goal, and when that's the case, that's a good policy. And, and a wise civil ruler will 
Consider the, the will of those under his authority. But the basic principle that uh, the government only operates by the consent of the governed, again, is, is, is not in this context and it's not anywhere else in the word of God. And so let's make sure that we understand the origin of civil government is not in man. It's not even the consent of the governed. It is from God. It's his institution. It is his will. So that's the first reason given. The second reason is in verse 2 and, well, really second and third reasons. We have two here in this verse. And there's a lot of overlap here. Uh, it covers some of the same ground, but it's stated this way in verse 2. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, that is resists the, the authority of civil government, resisteth the ordinance of God. So to restate that principle, it, it can be said this way. Resistance to civil government is rebellion against God. <clears throat> and our English language doesn't bear this out as much as the original language perhaps, but there's a very stark contrast of terms here between verse 1 and verse 2. The, the verb at the beginning of verse 1, to be subject unto, is the same root word as in, at the beginning of verse 2, resist. It's the same root word with a different prefix in each case that makes obviously the difference. In other words, we're confronted here with contrasting positions. That on the one hand of being subject to civil government or on the other hand resisting civil government. And there's not any uh, in-between ground presented here. It's either one or the other. We're either submissive or unsubmissive, subordinate or insubordinate. And because God himself has ordained civil government, opposing it amounts to opposing him. That's the simple principle here. There's nothing complicated or difficult about it, but it's, it's very searching. Opposing civil government amounts to opposing the ordinance of God. And again, this word ordinance is the same root word as we've mentioned there, to be subject unto or to resist. It is uh, what God has appointed and arranged. So then, who resists authority? Who resists authority? Well, let me give a couple of biblical answers to that question. <clears throat> we read in, in a couple of 
parallel passages, really, uh, parallel one to another. In Second Peter chapter 2 and verse 10, it speaks of those who walk after the flesh. They're described in the previous verse as unjust. They're unbelievers. They're lost in their sins, obviously. And it says, they walk in the lust of uncleanness, and it says they despise government. Then it goes on to say, presumptuous are they, self-willed. They're not afraid to speak evil of dignities. Now, there's some debate about what the government or the dignities that are spoken of here involve. But certainly the attitude toward authority, generally speaking, on the part of unbelievers, is antagonistic. They want to do things their way. They don't want anyone telling them what to do. They don't want God telling them what to do. They don't want other men on this earth to tell them what to do. They despise government. They despise dominion, as the margin uh, translates it. And then there's a similar passage in the epistle of Jude in verse 8. And it speaks of the unbelievers in the days of Lot in verse 7. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Likewise also, these filthy dreamers defile the flesh, despise dominion, and, <clears throat> it says, speak evil of dignities. They speak evil of authorities, which would include, among other things, civil government. So, who resists authority? Unbelievers. The ungodly, those who are far from God. On the other hand, according to this text, we have every reason to expect those who bow to God, those who submit to the Lordship of Christ, to submit to the authority that he has delegated at every level. The spirit of submission to him follows and leads to a spirit of submission to those powers that he has delegated authority to, whether it be in the home or in civil government, in the church, in the workplace, and so on. Now, I remind you of an instance where Paul, who wrote this letter by inspiration, was quick to correct any hint of disrespect to higher authorities. We see him in this appearance before the Jewish court in Acts chapter 23. And you're familiar with this scene 
But let me read it and refresh it in your mind. It says, Paul, earnestly beholding the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded them that stood by him to smite him on the mouth. He says to a a guard or a policeman there, Hit that man on the mouth. Then said Paul unto him, God shall smite thee, thou whited wall. For sittest thou to judge me after the law, and commandest me to be smitten contrary to the law? And they that stood by said, they're saying this to Paul, Revilest thou God's high priest? Are you reviling and rebuking the high priest? Then said Paul, I wist not, or I knew not, brethren, that he was the high priest. For it is written, Thou shalt not speak evil of the ruler of thy people. And so Paul, in in so many words, uh, corrects the mistake. He doesn't want to show any disrespect to the high priest here, Ananias. You think it took a great deal of grace on the part of Paul to say what he said here. I mean, this Ananias is a a, a hater of true religion, a hater and a persecutor of the Lord Jesus Christ through his people like Paul on this earth at, at this time. And yet Paul says, it is written, thou shalt not speak evil of the ruler of thy people. Here's an example of honoring the office. Even if the man occupying the office is not honorable, as was the case with this Ananias. And we'll say more about that, God willing, when we get to verse 7 in a few more weeks. But everyone who fears God should let this principle sink deep into their heart. Whosoever resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God. God takes our attitude toward civil government as our attitude toward him. He he takes it personally. And so if we resist civil government, we're in a position of resisting God's government. And that's a position that no believer wants to be in or should be in. You cannot be in submission to God and not be in submission to civil government that God has appointed. We might say the the point made at the beginning of verse 2 is sort of the the conclusion and the the stating negatively of the principle given there at the end of verse 1. And so this text searches our hearts. It searches mine. It's challenging to us in our present circumstances. What is my inner attitude toward civil 
government. It's a challenge to us, especially in this day in which we live, and especially with the federal government under which we live, with all of its promoting and encouraging of evil and sin and things like flying the pride flag on all of the embassies of our country around the world and so on. This is a great grief. It, it is wickedness and abomination in the eyes of God. And yet, our attitude toward civil government must be one of submission. It's very difficult. May God give us wisdom and give us a right spirit in, in the face of all of the evils and errors of government at this present time. Now, we'll try to hold off on any further exceptions, as I said, but let's go on and look at the next argument at the end of verse 2. They that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. This is a whole argument in itself. Those who rebel against civil government will be condemned. That's the meaning of the word damnation here, to be condemned. Now, the question arises, is this condemnation from man or from God? Is Paul saying, they that resist shall be condemned by men on earth or condemned by God in heaven? And writers on this portion of Scripture take different views on that, but I think it's probably easiest and safest to say it's both. There will be condemnation or judgment from man and God. And God will use the arm of civil government as his arm to punish the offender, the resister, in some earthly, temporal way. And we'll, again, see more about that when we get to verse 4. But as it's stated here, it simply amounts to this. Those with an unruly spirit, those who resist civil government will pay a price. It will catch up with them. They will be condemned. They will be condemned in the court of man and condemned in public opinion. There's a passage from the Old Testament that's relevant here in, from the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 10, verse 20. It says, curse not the king. No, not in thy thought. He's, he's saying not just to refrain from cursing the king verbally, but don't curse him even in your thoughts. And curse not the rich in thy bedchamber. The bedchamber was considered the most, you know, private, quiet room of the house. 
It goes on to say, For a bird of the air shall carry the voice, and that which hath wings shall tell the matter. <laughs> In other words, a rebellious spirit will catch up with you one way or another. You won't be able to keep it a secret. You won't be able to hide it long. And that, again, is a principle that applies uh, to believers as well as to unbelievers. God will, in some way, judge us for our unsubmissive attitude toward the government that he has ordained. And again, we're speaking of just civil government as an institution, generally speaking. Certainly the rebellion of unbelievers will be punished even hereafter in the lake of fire. So if we don't want to be condemned, judged, guilty in the eyes of man and in the eyes of God, then let us submit ourselves to the higher powers. That's just the simple, plain teaching of Romans 13.2. Now, let me make just a few observations on this, this point. And this is something that needs to be brought in at some point in studying Romans 13, and this is a good a place as any for this point to be made. Consider what a disgrace it is for one who claims to be in submission to God to be publicly known as a rebel against civil government. What a contradiction. What a poor testimony. Now, public perception is not the highest motivation, but it does come in. We should be concerned about the testimony that we're giving to the world in general. And our Lord seems to address that in this passage in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 17. Let me just refresh this in your memory. It says they when they were come to Capernaum, they that received tribute money came to Peter. And if I remember correctly, this is the temple tax. And they said, Doth not your master pay tribute? He saith, Yes. And when he was come into the house, Jesus prevented him, saying, What thinkest thou, Simon? Of whom do the kings of the earth take custom or tribute? Of their own children or of strangers? Peter saith unto him, Of strangers. Jesus saith unto him, Then are the children free. In other words, the, the, the children don't have to pay the tribute, the tax. It's the, the strangers that do, the citizens. Then Jesus says this, Notwithstanding, lest we should offend them. And I would underscore those words in your mind here as, as I read. 
lest we should offend them. Go thou to the sea, and cast an hook, and take up the fish that first cometh up, and when thou hast opened his mouth, thou shalt find a piece of money that take and give unto them for me and thee. Our Lord says to Peter in so many words, I could make a case for not paying this tax, but to keep from offending those who have asked you the question, I'm going to pay it. And, of course, he provides for it with this miraculous uh, fishing expedition. But notice how important it is not to offend, not to needlessly offend, even to the point of denying our own rights in some measure. We should go the extra mile to avoid offense. We see this principle laid out in other passages. Let me just read a couple of others here. In uh, Titus chapter 2, verse 7, he, uh, Paul is addressing young men, and he says, Young men exhort to be sober minded in all things, showing a pattern of good works, in doctrine, showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that, that cannot be judged, that cannot be. Faulted. That he that is of the contrary part, he that's on the other side, may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. And this is making the same point. Do all that you can. Just tell these young men to do all that they can to avoid needless offenses. And we know from the book of Acts and from church history that believers have been and may expect to be falsely accused. But let us live in such a way that the accusations have no legitimacy in the mind of those who know the facts, that the accusations don't stick to those who are at all honest and objective about the matter. So that he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. And again, this, this is a, an emphasis that comes up in other contexts. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul is dealing with the subject of Christian liberty in general, or and more specifically, the meat that's been offered to idols. <clears throat> and he says, avoid offending others as much as you can. If any man say unto you, this, that is this piece of meat, this meal is offered in sacrifice unto idols, eat not, he says, eat not for his sake that showed it and for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Conscience, I say, not thine own, but of the other. For why is my liberty judged of another man's conscience? 
If I by grace be a partaker, why am I evil spoken of for that for which I give thanks? Whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. Give none offense, neither to the Jews, nor to the Gentiles, nor to the church of God. Again, the, the emphasis is the same, regardless of the context, whether it's submission to civil government or whether it's eating meat offered to idols. We should do all that we can to avoid a bad testimony. We should do all that we can to maintain a good public testimony. Now, what if we are put in a position where we are forced, required to disobey God's law? Well, even then, we should endeavor to show that we submit to all other laws even those that we don't like, even those that are unfair, and so on. John MacArthur tells the story uh, briefly of Georgi Vins. Uh, I grew up hearing that man's name and seeing his his book that was published. uh, It was called... Testament from prison, I believe. He was in the Soviet Union. He was a pastor there. His father had been a pastor in the Soviet Union years before. And Mr. Vins was, I should say Brother Vins, was imprisoned for eight years in the Soviet Union and was finally uh, released and exiled to the United States as a swap for uh, a couple of prisoners here. And, and a few months later, his family was able to come to the United States also. He was a Baptist pastor, and he and others determined that no matter how severe and oppressive the government became, they would obey every law, just or unjust, except for laws that would force them to cease worship or to disobey God's word. That was the position that these unregistered Baptists took in the days of the Soviet Union. And so there were 2,000 churches, at least, that obeyed every law and, and many that were oppressive and unfair and unjust and so on, But they drew a line at that point and said, we must worship God and we must obey his word. And so these many churches refused registration with the government because registration was control and regulation. Reminds us in a way of John Bunyan, who spent... I think uh, 12 or 13 years in Bedford jail in England simply because he refused to take a license or he refused to get a license from the state to preach. Some took the license and continued preaching and didn't go to jail. Others like Bunyan did not. 
and they saw the the license aspect as a a way of control and interfering with God's authority. Well, men like Georgi Vins in terms of first Peter suffered for well doing. They didn't suffer for evil doing, they suffered for well doing. Or as Peter elsewhere says there in another chapter, he suffered as a Christian, not as a lawless renegade, not as a rebel or a resistor, one hostile to government per se, but as a Christian. One other text, again, that makes the same point is in First Peter. And this is in the context of slaves. It says, servants, be subject to your masters with all fear. This is a similar requirement as as. Romans 13, only here the the authority is the authority of the master and not civil government. But the, the attitude is to be the same. A Christian servant is to be submissive and under subjection to his master. And notice what it goes on to say, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. Now, it's pretty easy to be submissive to a good master, and one that's fair and just and, and thoughtful and compassionate and so on. But Peter says, if you're a believer and you have a master who is unfair and abusive and crooked, As long as you're his slave, you've got to be in submission to him also. That's difficult. Maybe no more difficult than for us in our text to realize that the powers that we are under, we are to submit to. We've had occasion in a couple of studies here recently to point out that the Galileans in Jesus' day had a reputation. More than the Jews in Judea, more than the Samaritans uh, who were halfway in between geographically, the Galileans were the hot-tempered, anti-Caesar crowd. Their finger was on the trigger, so to speak. They're ready for a fight. They want to get Jewish independence from the Roman Caesar. That's what they're known for, or what they were known for. Let us who name the name of Christ not have the reputation of the Galileans of the New Testament. Having that kind of of reputation and testimony 
simply impedes the cause of the gospel. The very cause that we want to advance, we do harm to if we resist civil authority. It makes us to be known for the wrong thing. We ought to be known for the gospel, the good news of Christ, obedience to God, and the powers that he has ordained. But to be known as anarchists or troublemakers and so on, is the very opposite of what we ought to be known for. So if we don't want to have a reputation as being anti-government, then let us not be anti-government. It's that simple. Again, this text forces us to keep a watch over our own heart and our own disposition toward God and toward the authorities that he has placed So I'll just close here with this. Consider the words of Christ to the 12 disciples when he sent them out to preach and to minister in Matthew chapter 10. Listen to what he says to them. Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. He doesn't hide the fact that that they're going to encounter opposition and that some that they run into are going to be the equivalent of wolves. And some in civil government might be described that way. So what does he tell them? Be ye therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. He uses as illustrations these two animals, a serpent that, that no one likes and the dove that is, is harmless to everyone. And he says, be wise as a serpent, harmless as a dove. But then he goes on to say this, beware of men for they will deliver you up to the councils Yes, these are civil authorities. And they will scourge you in their synagogues. There will be unjust, abusive treatment. And ye shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them and the Gentiles. I believe our Lord's instruction here is, is relevant to our study in Romans 13. We ought to be wise on the one hand, harmless on the other. In fact, that's like our Lord himself, isn't it? He was wisdom personified, and yet he's described also uh, in Hebrews 7 as harmless, holy and harmless. So let us pray for God's grace 
to be wise as serpents, harmless as doves, to maintain a, a, a testimony before this world that is not injurious to the gospel of grace that we proclaim. Let us not contradict our message with our action. We preach lordship salvation. Repentance from sin, bowing to the rule of Christ. Part of bowing to the rule of Christ is bowing to civil government that he has ordained. And as that civil government becomes more and more corrupt and anti-Christian, I believe we can learn something from uh, the John Bunyans and the Georgi Vinses of this world who have been faithful to the Lord and suffered. But anyone who would dare say John Bunyan is um, an insurrectionist, no one would have taken that seriously. Anyone who, who would have said Georgi Vins is a hostile toward government that would fall flat on its face. And when the time does come that we must obey God rather than men, let it, let it be so clear that in everything otherwise we submit that that accusation of being hostile to government is invalid. May God help us.